So the talk this evening is about compassion and compassion meditation practice. Maybe you noticed how the ability to be kind and tender naturally leads to some beautiful tears, but also the ability to connect with suffering in yourself, that there's almost like a natural progression here that as we discover what our experience is like, we run up against uh, places of where we're hurting. So for this reason, the Buddha also taught practice of compassion, of relating to our suffering in a skillful way, not uh, falling into despair and feeling crushed and not turning away from it either. So we're all doing this and learning about this together here as a community and as um, each one who we are. The last time I taught in this hall was about a month ago and I was about to come in here and lead a sitting when one of the staff members came running down the stairs and said that there had been a couple of bombs at the Boston Marathon and not much was known yet but there was a lot of trouble in the news. And there was a whole process of the teachers deciding when we would tell people and how you know, what was the timing in the retreat and how would people feel? And we waited a little while for the news to clear and to see if anyone got a call that some close person had been harmed. And actually, just by random statistics, we didn't receive such a call. But then we let people know in the afternoon teaching and people received it with really open, beautiful hearts, and actually no one freaked out, but it was wonderful to hear that news and to feel it in a community of practitioners, in a community of people who were opening their heart together, that we were here in this place, feeling like we're becoming more sane rather than insane. Then when I left home, which is one of the ways that this place can feel like a refuge, I drove home through the strangely deserted streets before the bombers had been caught and the one killed. And that night I spoke with a very dear fellow practitioner friend whose brother, who lives in another state far from here, had simultaneously had a kind of one of his recurring psychotic episodes and he'd gotten hold of a gun and was having all these paranoid feelings that the world was anti-Semitic and he was going to have to kill his roommate and some kill some police and stuff and she was really shaken up by the two things happening at once and she started crying on the phone and said that or almost crying kind of and she said it reminded her of the koan that she'd practiced as a Zen student many years before, why is Kuan Yin weeping? Why is the female bodhisattva embodiment of enlightenment and compassion, why is she weeping? There's a statue of Kuan Yin in the other room and having her be female I think is a symbolic way of talking about tenderness or the caring that's often carried through what's thought of as the feminine. It's not, caring is not unmasculine, let's say. 
but I think that's why she's thought of as a mother or someone who hears the cries of the world as if we were all little children. But why would the mother also cry? And because, I'll give you the answer, you can, I won't put you on the spot. Someone told us today that their heart pounds whenever we ask the audience to respond, even though they don't say anything. (laughs) So out of compassion. Um, And also because I always write talks that are too long. I better get the clock, actually. Um, Anyway, she weeps because she knows that this suffering isn't necessary. Because she knows that the human mind, human heart is loving and enlightened at the deepest level and there's so much suffering that's caused just by ignorance and by sort of what happens to people's psyches when they get traumatized and they start to replicate the kind of suffering that they learned from people who were also suffering, etc. You know, we all have some sense of this in our own life. There was really a feeling that the that bombing felt really unnecessary and so many acts of warfare and terror and pain and violence feel as if human beings, we could have done better. Doesn't it feel like that? We learned things about this crazy person who actually went to a pretty decent school and you know, was well-liked at periods in his life and why would he do that? And then learning that there are two boys' parents abandoned them in the United States and their mother was this kind of crazy shoplifter and you start to understand that maybe there was more going on inside than really meets the eye that, um, why that people would be susceptible to such insane ideas. And it's really clear in our world in what's now being called the Anthropocene epoch, in other words, that human activity is really controlling the weather and the biosphere is no longer like, you know, something that's independent. It's like we influence everything. There's so many of us now. That suffering and delusion in this world is very much caused by the human mind, by the problems in our minds. War, for example, inability to get along with people who are different or who want different things or incapacity to collaborate. Climate change is a human problem. It's a, induced by our inability to actually agree that it's even happening and get together and make a solution. It would cost something affordable per capita. And even for those who feel that it might not be happening or might not be catastrophic, the gamble would be worth it if we could all figure out that we wanted to face it and tackle the problem. If we were gambling people, we would want to invest that money for... But the problem is that maybe most of what's going to happen is in the future or going to happen to our children's children. And has any generation ever made a significant sacrifice for people they've never met? It's been compared to what was like in Pearl... Before Pearl Harbor in the United States, everyone knew Hitler was bad and was kind of hurting people somewhere else. And we didn't enter into the attempt to stop this process until we actually felt some really deep pain ourselves or our national ego and pride and was harmed. So there's something in our human mind that, you know, is kind of 
problematic. Albert Einstein said, of, he was talking about war being a problem in the human mind. It's not really the weapons, it's the, you know, the use of them. He said it would be easier to take the toxin out of plutonium than out of human beings. And actually, I think Einstein was wrong, as smart as he was. Because um, the Buddha's insight is that the toxins can be taken out of our minds, can be cleansed here and now, just by this very simple method that we're applying here is this kindness, this awareness, this willingness to connect and uncover and disclose and enhance our innate caring nature, our innate caring hearts, to actually make contact with our experience from the heart and see, in a sense, how vulnerable we are, how we can be touched, how we can experience pain. That famous line in Shylock, uh, in Shakespeare, where Shylock says, you know, do I not bleed? Appealing to the innate caring and resonance that's available from human to human and from human in ourselves. As the great early Buddhist teacher Chogyam Trungpa said, when we know how to really see our minds and work with our minds, then we're not spreading our kind of emotional pollution around quite in the same way. We become kind of self-cleansing. We don't project our negativity on others. We understand that we can choose to set aside certain ways of being, that, that it's this quality of awareness in the moment has a way of inserting a point of choice. Sharda was calling it the turning, that we can turn toward kindness. We can choose that. We're not always being controlled and dominated by our experience or by our thoughts. This is something that people have talked about in the hall today, saying like choosing to believe that people might not be like seeing us as a toxin or a disturbance everywhere we go thinking that people might forgive us or tolerate our presence and how amazing it can be that when you see the thought coming up that maybe you know somebody thinks or I'm just horrible and seeing it's just a thought in my mind maybe I don't have to believe it maybe I don't have to take it on entirely and then something else can happen like what comes in to fill the space is something wiser um, some influx from a better aspect of ourselves so the practice we're doing here has tremendous implications for our own self and our own well-being, but also for others and even ultimately for all beings. These realms of the Brahma-vihara practices are all really quite relevant and all sort of very real and realistic, although in a certain way there's a tremendous imaginary component in what we do here where we conjure the feeling of our benefactors and some people who have died or people who never existed maybe, or who lived many, many years ago. Nonetheless, this love practice is something very real, very trustworthy. We start off in general focusing on our own experience and begin to settle and clarify and see how the practice can make us feel more connected and to heal us even through and with all the traumas that we've received, all the pain that we've all felt and you can either look around or feel around the room and know that every single person in here has lost someone 
that we care about in some way or other, either through death or the end of a friendship, or even losing parts of oneself, like the child that we were, who in some sense is still alive inside us, but in other ways has been replaced by an adult. Something very poignant about that, that we live many phases in our life and are characterized by many different circumstances. Many of us in the room have been touched by sexual abuse or trauma like that, or you know, been close to someone who was alcoholic or drug addicted. We've been rattled by the acts of terrorism and random violence in our world. We feel and carry that sense of unsafety with us. Some of us, or actually all of us, I think are relatively privileged to even be able to take the time to be here. And yet even with all this privilege, we haven't been able to be protected against different kinds of internal wounds that may be invisible to other people maybe even not so visible to ourselves, not well understood, causing lots of confusion in us. And others of us have been the recipients of a lot of cultural burdens that are unfair, feeling like that you have or we have the wrong kind of body or we should look differently. We shouldn't love the kind of people that we love or are attracted to. We have the wrong job. Um, And generally we're all here subject to the possibility that the world is unstable and could sort of teeter at any time into something that's difficult for everyone. So that vulnerability is not something that is kind of necessarily private, though it often feels that way. And the other thing that human beings carry that the Buddha saw very clearly is a sense of lack or deficiency that somehow inside us there's a feeling of something not being enough or not good enough. And it just gets projected through every situation, through how we relate to our practice, with whether we're able to focus on our breath or whether we're unhappy at a time when we'd like to be happy or whether we can make someone else happy when we can't make possibly necessarily make someone else uh, be saved, save somebody these sense of kind of lack and the psychological unworthiness are delusions that we carry. It's like wrong view that we have. And they're both expressed on an individual level and a collective level. The Hindu saint Nisargadat or Hindu wise person said, there's nothing wrong with you except that your idea of yourself is wrong. All these feelings of lack and disconnection are signs that we're not connected to our true nature. And yet we all have them in some sense or other. We all have our own way of feeling left out. Going home is hard when you don't know where home is. I feel connected, of course, to the place where I grew up and to my family there. But I've spent less than six months in that city in the nine years since I turned 18. Each place I've lived has left an imprint on me, and there have been many. I'm still a sucker for the hills of Iowa, the cicada-filled cornfields and endless blue skies that saw me into childhood. I miss Seattle, too. The list goes on. India's assault of colors, Italy's crumbling ruins, Russia's bitter cold and hard beauty. Even as my memories of these places fade, I hold each of them in my heart like a past lover to revisit on nights when I'm feeling lost. At the age of 27, I'm still hoping to find a place in which to grow old, a place that will catch me in its net and hold me. When that happens, I hope I will be wise enough to let it happen.
Going home is hard when you don't know where home is. The idea is that, or the truth is to find our home where we are. Like partly there's the outer home and there's something real about that, like places where we're comfortable or known or have what we need. But this moment is also our home and to make our home in it is part of this practice. To make our home in it and to live with what's filling this moment, our experience. In a sense, if you look at life a certain way, through a certain lens, the moment is everything that we have. Just here and now, there's no other time, no other place that we could ever possibly be. And yet, our being here is fleeting, not solid, not holding everything that we are, not holding all our possibilities. There's a kind of inherent like fullness, emptiness about the experience in the moment, which is maybe part of why we keep creating more and more images and targets or hoping that we'll get to some other place where we'll feel okay, where we'll feel imbalanced, in balance. So the intimacy with how it is for us here and now in every moment, that's the solution for this sense of lack. So otherwise the lack will cruelly drive us forward into things that don't satisfy the ability to rest with our experience in a closeness and embrace the sense of lack rather than building walls or trying to make something happen or eating something or going for refuge, as Greg said earlier in the retreat, into people, places, and things. To be able to feel the times when we are, feel shaky, feel a little teary, and to touch that experience with kindness So kindness, that's the basic position, like the sort of fighting stance in Taekwondo. And then when the wise and kind mind discovers a moment of suffering or pain, compassion is the response. And in the response, the ability to respond and wish well, in that very moment, instead of turning away or shutting down, there comes a quality of joy in the connection. There comes a sense of our true nature being expressed. So there's a movement from suffering toward a different kind of joy, a different kind of fullness of life that isn't available when we shut down or turn away or get angry. When the wise mind touches happiness and pleasure, then appreciation and um, well-wishing is the response. And the wise mind also knows its limitations, which is the practice of equanimity, the Brahma-vihara of being with things as they are, including knowing that we might not be able to do everything. We might not be able to save this world if we do what we can. But at some point we have to rest. We have to actually go to sleep or take a break sometimes. So we're still in the realm here in the teaching of compassion, of actually feeling that trembling of the heart when we touch upon the fragile and fleeting nature of life and our own sensitivity, our own vulnerability. The word karuna, um, which is the Pali and Sanskrit for compassion, actually it doesn't mean that you just sit there and take it. It doesn't mean that you just sit and suffer. The word karma, kur, that root, that Sanskrit or Hindu root, is the same as creating. It means doing. It's the same as creative. 
So karma means actually doing something about the suffering. And the root word ru, karuna, ru is the sound, supposedly the sound of weeping. So compassion is doing something about the weeping that we see or feel in the world. Doing something about the weeping in this world. Very sweet word. So don't think also that being here is not doing anything because there's been so many moments of attention that you've placed and of opening the heart and of listening carefully and trying to see what's true for you and sorting through it. Even resting is actually doing something productive. That's not necessarily how our culture tells us to be, but we can't really replenish. We can't really understand unless we actually take some time like this to have things sift through. It's like they say in some kinds of yoga that you have to root to fly. You know, you have to have a really deep ground to be able to open more deeply. The function of or, or flavor of karuna or, or compassion is actually not to tolerate cruelty in our own mind or the mind of anyone else or in the world. To not tolerate cruelty. So actually compassion is a kind of, I like to say it's not a tolerant, it's intolerant. It doesn't allow the cruelty to stay. There's so many subtle ways in our mind that we're cruel to ourselves, including blaming ourselves and judging ourselves and giving up on ourselves or giving up on situations. That's cruelty. And the success of compassion is when the cruelty is removed. And the failure of compassion is when it succumbs to despair, giving up turning away. Those are the near and far neighbors, as Greg was explaining today in that very thorough kind of also Dharma talk about compassion. So please know that this attentional strategy that you're using here and all the different kinds of refinements of knowing, like, when can I really pay attention to this feeling and when do I need to shift my attention to be more skillful so I feel empowered and resourceful that I can be balanced in order to come back to the feeling later or the wisdom of saying like I feel really overwhelmed but I notice some kindness over here and I can really choose to nurture this little tender quality of kindness so that eventually it'll be strong enough to take on these bigger patterns these deeper karmic formations in ourselves all of that is actually work and I think on the second day of a retreat you can all relate to how much work you've been doing really with your minds here, even though you've been quiet and even though it feels like you're just sitting on your ass. (laughs) Even your ass gets sore, right, from sitting all this time. (laughs) You're doing something really wonderful, as you'll see also when you leave, to bring beauty alive in this world, to bring connection and um, a quality of humanity in yourself and around yourself. Our teacher the, of the lineage, the Buddha, when he figured out how to end his, bring his own suffering to an end through this same technique of paying attention moment to moment, of opening his heart and mind to his own experience, to his own inner world, or what's called like our, the world of our experience, of his experience, when he found that place of accepting and understanding that he couldn't be held down by any experience because experience is also passing, arising and passing away. 
first he rested for a while and he really rejoiced and he just felt really good about himself. Like say he rocked it, as somebody said today in a meeting. And then he started to think, well, you know, maybe someone could understand what I'm talking about. And one of, supposedly one of the devas came down and begged him to teach. Well, self-doubt said, what I've learned is really like, it's powerful, but it's slow. And it's kind of weird and unusual to ask people to do this. Maybe they won't want to, or maybe they won't get it, or who knows if it'll work for someone else. And all those conversations he had in his head with himself. And then he decided that he would try. And so after that, for 50 years, he walked around the dusty roads of India offering his teaching to anyone who was interested, which is kind of amazing. The teaching is that he had accomplished everything for his own benefit, and thereafter he wasn't even capable of trying to get anything for himself because he was done with his own work. So then his work became to pass it on to other people. And he was fully kind of naked to all the political controversies of his time. Some people would come and tell him that he was wrong and, you know, people tried to poison him and kill him in various ways. There was envy and times when he couldn't really control his followers and people who didn't get it and then, like, would leave the monk's order and criticize him and stuff like that afterwards. I mean, he gave his gift and was received sometimes with great gratitude and people would get liberated and sometimes people wouldn't understand it and they would go and try something else or they just give up you know which is a little bit like what happens for us and when we try to help or we try to offer our best like it sometimes it's met with gratitude or sometimes it makes people angry or sometimes it's indifferent or sometimes it absolutely doesn't work we maybe we learn something from it but it's never really predictable he also came down from his rank as a privileged aristocrat and became a a beggar. And it's said that um, it's possible that he became a beggar not because he was like what my mother thought was a sort of a schnorrer or somebody who didn't feel like working and just live off other people. (laughs) But he was um, offering people the opportunity to feel what it was like to give, to understand the blessing of being able to give. Because he had his own kingdom, he could have lived pretty comfortably had he wished to pursue that path. She's telling us to wake up from this nightmare of the wrong idea of who and what we are. So as we reconnect inside ourself and see that we need more than all the outer medicines can give us and that there's this kind of internal deep understanding that no one else can give us. We also really need each other to do it. It's most of us would not be able to do five days of this kind of schedule. Like even dyed in the wool meditators can't do this many hours really of sitting. Like plus you have to cook for yourself if you're alone. Makes a big difference to have all this food just prepared by all of the collaborative efforts of the help of you guys, everybody doing our jobs together to run this place. Keeping the, would have to cost a great deal more if you guys didn't all vacuum and do whatever you do, fill the soap dispensers and do the laundry and clean the bathrooms and thank you all for that. We can see how we're all really participating here, each in our own ways. How much we need this, how much we need each other to hold this room together or none of us would stay for 45 minutes or I doubt it anyway, it's highly doubtful. 
there's a sort of quiet way that we're supporting each other to reconnect inside from the quality of lack and disconnection that we all feel both spiritually and psychologically. And in this safe container, some of us can feel at times the glimmerings of not being confined by our ordinary idea of who we are, like being able to love or forgive a little bit more. Or sometimes maybe the return of the repressed can happen. Like sometimes we realize that um, things bother us more than we had imagined and we have to open our heart to something old from our life that we haven't completely finished dealing with. That also happens. It's part of the healing here. Part of what the silence kind of does for us is let us really know how we're feeling. Sometimes we feel like sort of a sense of being able to be complete in a moment with nothing extra needing to be done for us or to us, finding ourselves as in a kind of boundless way. And we've heard about that, like the, the feeling of a quality of boundlessness and then a kind of scariness and wanting to kind of snap back and go back to feeling more defined. And all of that is to be known and to be studied, like the perfect imperfection of how we experience ourselves as we are. Compassion kind of puts a love around that, around being who we are as we are, not perfectly, perfectly imperfect. When we can release the feeling that we should be somehow different, it's like we can offer that to other beings as well. Sharda introduced the practice of receiving metta from other beings, from those in our life whom we loved or have felt loved by or whom we felt good around or spiritual figures or composers. And that sense of being able to be receptive and to remind ourselves that there really is a lot of love and goodness that we've received that we might have overlooked or that we don't carry with us just because this like sort of bad idea keeps taking over. I was telling, I think one of the meeting groups that one of my house plants became a benefactor in this meditation. It's very fun to see kind of what the little uh, images are that come in and kind of with the joy spots in our minds. That sense of forgiveness and compassion and being seen so deeply washing away a quality of kind of stuckness or self-blame and confusion, the way that, in a sense, we access the possibility of holding ourselves more tenderly at times and in ways that we haven't been able to hold ourselves. And that comes through the quality of kind of attending more to the goodness in ourself and in others, and also a little bit through the impersonal container of the silence and the teaching itself. I remember being here doing compassion practice um, for months at a time and noticing that I I was invited to do compassion for males and compassion for females and how all the resistance I had to both each gender in its own way, like the things that I couldn't stand about men and the things I couldn't stand about women were both kind of part of what I had to work through as I was doing that practice. And in the end, able to love both the same, each with their different kinds of qualities, to feel the compassion for 
all the suffering and deluded qualities of women and compassion for all the suffering and deluded qualities of men. That there's a sense that the love that we feel or that we generate can hold all those differences and not create separation from them. So the teaching is that our hearts can touch something very, very boundless right through this relative world and right in this relative experience. In the Thai forest tradition, they say that Buddhahood is in this very uncertain heart. It's only here. It's not in some future time. It's exactly in this uncertain heart that enlightenment is to be found. And when we're not fixating or appropriating or making a self out of it, but just resting in the experience of letting things be as they are, there's a kind of release that can happen that we see sort of very clearly that it's okay, there's an unburdening, being able to be present and just let ourselves be in whatever state we're in. So it's a kind of (coughs) abiding, abiding and being willing to connect with whatever's happening, with whatever's going on, having the courage to be able to do that. Pema Children writes, how are we ever going to change anything? How is there going to be less aggression in the universe rather than more? How do I communicate so that things feel, so that things that feel frozen, unworkable, and eternally aggressive begin to soften up and some kind of compassionate exchange begins to happen? We start that within ourself. She goes on saying, we start with being willing to feel what we're going through to have a compassionate relationship with parts of ourselves that we feel may not be worthy of existing on this planet. So it's not just with what feels comfortable. If we even aspire to stay awake and open to what we're feeling, something begins to change. And after that, we learn a little more to be able to act and speak in a way that communicates clearly this openness to other beings, like seeing how we start to make ourselves right or wrong is the same way we start to make other beings right or wrong. So I feel like having observed this retreat with the amount of wisdom and understanding and kindness that you is arising in you, with many of you very uh, relatively new to the practice, that the quality of <coughs> kindness is really allowing each of you and each of us to touch on a kind of quality of inner knowing or inner understanding. The famous or well-known yoga teacher Cindy Lee recently wrote a book about her own suffering with food and body image and she writes, one day at the snap of a finger I saw that I had gotten it wrong all these years. I was always mad at my body but in fact my body has been fine. It's my relationship to my body that's hurting me and my mind that is the troublemaker. But it seems that there's a way that if we're really caught in believing the judgment and the blame, that there's no way we can admit the troublemaking that's going on inside of us. So this kind of harmless, kind attention to that inside us, which likes to blame and judge and fix, and just to see it for what it is, see it for the suffering that it brings and how it's actually the source of suffering rather than the solution 
we can start to feel kind and forgiving toward that pattern in our minds. And maybe it once sort of is a shortcut to well-being. It's a wish for well-being that doesn't work out. So in the last retreat I taught um, that during the marathon bombing, we all took a vow to give up blaming, judging, and fixing for the rest of the retreat. And Philip Moffat, the teacher, made everyone say it, like, I renounce blaming, judging, and fixing. (laughs) And when that happens, we feel like we can really open into a much more dimensional quality in ourselves, a much sort of richer appreciation for everything of who we are. And we realize that we're reunited with something that we've long been estranged from. I have a friend who um, was homeless for some time when he was younger. He used to go out with my younger sister, and he um, lives in a country far away from here. They no longer are friends, but there was one point when he wrote me on Facebook and asked me, just kind of out of the blue, and asked me one of those random questions about Buddhism that I sometimes get now that I'm teaching. And he said, do Buddhists care at all about homeless people? And I didn't have a lot of time, and I didn't know where his question was coming from, since I actually didn't know him very well at the time. Actually, I know I'm not going to say that. Um, (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) I couldn't find any kind of Buddhist street missions or soup kitchens much. Like I thought, oh, then I started thinking, like, we're not actually that good of a religion. Like, we're way too contemplative. We're not, like, so active and helping. Um, Resonating with some of the questions here of, like, I'm not really doing anything, and I, eh. And so I, sent, I said, well, I don't know much about anything except there is this one kind of Zen retreat where people go out and experience being homeless. And there's some statements on the website about we're not bringing soup and we're not bringing blankets, but we want to look homeless people in the eye. And he wrote me this super excited letter afterwards about um, his own experience when he was younger. He said, that website was put together by someone who really knows the street. And I was like, well, okay. He said, the first thing I ever wanted was recognition of my existence. That recognition would have shown that someone knew. And if someone knew, I had a chance of hope. Without hope, there is nothing. I remember being kicked out of doorways when I was just trying to get out of the rain. And I was just doing, I was doing no harm. I simply wasn't seen. And he said he learned so much from being on the street about how people are confined within our own worlds of hurry and getting past and being uncomfortable with recognizing the actual humanity of another being, another human being who's in pain, who sits on the sidewalk and kind of is hard to look at, hard to acknowledge. Maybe part of the reason that it's hard to acknowledge them is feeling like we can't really help them or we don't know what's going on. So he wrote, most people are so busy they actually aren't living. They move fast, but I think we don't get, they don't get to any distance. I hope this brief outline hasn't shocked you. Then he has a long story about how he got some money and went back to his home country and um, found a little poem in his mother's purse after she died. He says, I'm trying to live by it, so sometimes maybe I'm immature. I don't care. The poem started, I will pick more daisies. So through this practice of compassion, the word compassion in English also means something like feeling with passion or emotion and calm is feeling together with. We learn to feel together with ourselves, and we also 
are encouraged to feel and extend our care to the suffering of other beings. So that's the second step. And I think at this point in the retreat, we'd like to also invite a certain inclusiveness into our practice to sense uh, each other in the room and to offer our love and kindness outward. The results of this are very happy also. It's not like you're going to lose something by giving it away. It's not like you're leaving yourself behind all of a sudden and stopping caring about yourself. You're just also caring about others. Nisargadatta says, I find that somehow, by shifting the focus of attention, I can become the very thing I look at. I can experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of that thing. I call this capacity of entering another focal point of consciousness, love. He goes on and speaks about how we know that we can be both the subject of our consciousness, like the one who is conscious, and we can also be the object of our own consciousness, we're what we're looking at. We're both the looker and the looking at, right? You felt that in the, all day. And in being both of those, you're actually beyond either one of those poles. And being beyond either one of those poles, you're no longer confined within quite so strictly in the sense of the jailhouse of separate self. Bell Hooks writes that love and domination cannot coexist. The practice of domination relies on the constant production of a feeling of lack or the need to grasp. Giving love to others offers us a way to end this suffering of separateness. Loving ourselves and extending that love to everything beyond the self, we can experience wholeness. We are healed. The Buddha taught that we can create a love so strong that our minds become like a pure and flowing river that cannot be burned. Such love is the foundation of spiritual awakening. So it's not enough just to love ourselves. Um, That is the foundation of it. And actually loving ourselves is essential. It's the basis of loving others. But we also need to be able to offer this compassion and love outward. And in fact, compassion seems to call us outward. There were some questions about that in the hall this afternoon to understand the suffering in the world and our place in it and our role in trying to help. I love the story of, from the Catholic tradition of how the St. Francis, who was also a relatively prosperous aristocrat, started to... Um, had a spiritual awakening when he saw a leper and he got off his horse and started kissing the wounds of the leper, kissing the stumps and the lips, the kind of mangled (coughs) leper's lips. And this story used to curl my hair. There was a person that I taught with who used to use it. And I thought, I said, come on, that's so melodramatic. Like, do you really have to use that story? It's like too much. Kissing the oozing wounds, throwing himself upon the leper, Francis embraced him then lowered his head and kissed him upon his lips. Afterward, he lifted him in his arms and covering him with his robe, began to advance slowly with heavy steps toward the city, seeking a shelter in which this leper could be cared for. To be able to really see others when they're in terrible pain is actually a service because not turning away makes a difference and reminds that other being of their humanity. The meditation group I lead in Cambridge performed this huge investigation like with our minds that lasted for a couple of years about compassion exactly like what do we do about the compassion in the world and it felt kind of like we came to an answer when we found an anecdote by the South African writer Lawrence Vanderpost, Post 
who talked about when he was in a prison camp in Africa in, during World War II, and they said that a lot of the prisoners would be unjustly sentenced to death and they would be marched out and shot. And um, they would be they could, a place where they could be like seen from the wire, and they said everyone in the camp would go out and watch the person and kind of be with them, watching them, so that someone at least knew that someone was watching them with compassion and knowing that what was happening for them was unjust. It would have been so different if the camp hadn't turned out to watch, if they just said, we can't do anything, and just kept playing checkers or hide, hidden away in their huts. But no, they watched. And that gave the support to the person that they needed to not feel alone and to be able to be seen. So this teaching of the Buddha is actually quite radical. It's, he really meant it when he said that we should love all beings and that we have the capacity in our hearts to really hold the endless ocean of suffering in this world and that we have enough resources to be compassionate for it. Even if equanimity tells us we can't do everything, the karuna part, the karma part, means that we do what we can do. Like we let ourselves be activated. We don't just withdraw into our perfect world here where all our meals are served. Julia Butterfly Hill, the forest activist, says that people always want to know about whether we can make a difference. And she said, well, we're actually always making a difference, but it just depends what kind of difference you would like to make. So we should actually be feeling that we're engaged with the suffering in this world through our own circumstances through our own life, through what we can do, whether it's a family life or a business or something that's officially called helping, that we should be happy that we have the chance to offer this and to offer from a deeper place in ourselves what we know, what we learn here. St. Francis of Assisi on his deathbed said, I've done what's mine to do. May God show you what is yours. There's a story about um, Martin Luther King's, one of Martin Luther King's sermons was talking, he was talking about one time when he and his brother were driving to Chattanooga down the road and he said, for some reason the drivers were very discourteous that night. Hardly any driver dimmed his, their lights and I remember very vividly my brother A.D. looked over and in a tone of anger said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along and refuses to dim their lights, I'm going to pour my lights on them and all their power. I'm going to blink my highlights on. And Martin Luther King says, I looked at him quick and said, oh no, don't you do that. There'd be too much light on this highway and it'll end up in mutual destruction for all. Somebody's got some sen- got to have some sense on this highway. So cruelty and revenge are not necessarily going to help us do anything. But this quality of helping with suffering cannot really come from hatred. It really should come from our love and our love for all beings and our love for the earth and our love for ourselves, plus a willingness to step out, um, sort of step out of our minds, go out of our minds or go out of our normal boundaries or sense of ourself. I remember once some friends of, uh, spiritual friends were walking up the hill to meet this very famous lama in Nepal. And we passed by this little child who was like crying and she had just she had just dropped these two little chicken eggs on the ground and they were broken and she was crying and um, most of us I'll say walked past her thinking this was a sad little tableau of childhood but one of us stopped our friend Fred von Allman and 
he kind of bent over the little girl and asked, started asking her some questions. And it turned out that she, you know, this hill that we had to climb up was inhabited by very poor people. And it turned out that she'd been sent by her mother with a rupee to buy eggs. And now she dropped the eggs and she was terrified of going home and saying that she dropped them because the rupee really meant a lot to that family and no doubt they wouldn't have had any breakfast and who knows what would have happened. So actually by stepping out of his idea and engaging with this little crying child, uh, Fred was able to give her a rupee and he like walked with her to the store and got two more eggs and kind of tied them in a little bag and stuff and sent, took her at least as far as where we had found her in the first place and sent her on her way and watched her go into her house successfully without the eggs, with the eggs, without the broken eggs. And that was just a simple kind of gesture that any person can do when we see each other in trouble, do what we can. So I'll close with a, let's see, poem. Well, I'll say one more thing and then close with a poem. Gary Snyder, as he talks about saving the environment, he says, we don't do it because it has to be done. We do it because this is beautiful. That's the spirit of the bodhisattva or the practitioner. The practitioner isn't anxious to do good, doesn't feel obligation or anything like this. In our form of Buddhism, we just say, I'm going to pick up the tab for everybody. Good night, folks. So here this the last, the closing poem called uh, by Ellen Bass, If You Knew. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater and tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm and brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, When the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I rarely remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They'd just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block, and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does a dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like? if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time. Thank you. We'll be quiet a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.